We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Erica Reamer. Today, we welcome nationally recognized professional coder, auditor, and educator, Terry Fletcher. Terry will ask and answer the question, what in the world is a medical assistant? Senior healthcare consultant, Christy Pollard, delivers the third installment of her four-part series on maternal morbidity and mortality. Senior healthcare consultant Lori Johnson reports on the recent coordination and maintenance committee meeting and how you can participate. And Tim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk. Plus, Dr. Reamer presents her talkback segment. Now here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and a kid who still likes to play Let's Make a Deal trading Halloween candy, Chuck Buck. <laughs> Thanks, Clark Anthony. Thank you. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 483rd Live Edition Talk Dead Tuesday. And good morning, Erica. You've been missed. Good morning, Chuck, and hello, everyone. Glad to be back. Nice to have you back, and I want to thank Susan Gatehouse for sitting in for you last Tuesday while you were at the Actus Convention. Any news to report there? Yes, thank you, Susan, for me as well. Um, it was surreal being at Actus in person again, and I will talk more about it during my talk back. By the way, I was thinking of you when I read an article recently about new words in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, and I wanted to get your reaction to some of these new words. The first word, long COVID. second word, breakthrough COVID. And the third word, vaccine passport. What's your reaction? Well, I have to disclose that I am a big fan of Merriam-Webster. And how about I discuss those new phrases during my talk back, too? Okay, that'd be very good. We'll look forward to that as well. Now, it's not a new word, but it appears to be a new focus and the focus on maternal morbidity and mortality. And so my question to you is, and I know this calls for judgment on your part, but how come the mortality rate is so high in this country? Unfortunately, it is multifactorial, but we have fewer obstetricians and midwives, less postpartum care, and no paid maternity leave as compared to other high-income countries, and there are significant racial disparities in maternal mortality. Well, we'll certainly know more when Christy Pollard joins us later in the broadcast with her third installment in her four-part series on the subject. And we're looking forward, as always, to your talk back on Actus and COVID. We have much news to report, and we begin with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is brought to you by ICD University Bookstore inviting you to purchase the webcast and the book on the 2022 Social Determinants of Health. Get comprehensive help to correctly use the ICD-10 CMZ codes to report social determinants data. The special package is available at the ICD University Bookstore. Here now is Tim Powell. Medicare is still meeting out penalties for hospital-acquired conditions, or HAC as it's commonly called. Even though the numbers are continuing to drop, I'm sure many of us think of COVID-19 when we think of hospital-acquired conditions. COVID-19, for better or worse, does not drive HAC scores. HAC scores usually start with the CMS Patient Safety and Adverse Events Composite, or CMS PSI-90. According to CMS, the CMS PSI-90 is a subset of the patient safety indicators and is a more relevant measure for Medicare population because it utilizes ICD-10 data. The CMS PSI-90 measure summarizes patient safety across multiple indicators, monitors performance over time, and facilitates comparative reporting and quality improvement at the hospital level. The, CM, the CMS PSI-90 composite measure, as updated on August 23rd of 2018, 
and tends to reflect the safety climate of a hospital by providing a marker of patient safety during the delivery of care. Now, hack scores are also driven by rates of opportunistic infections, including MRSA, surgical site infections, or SSI, and catheter site infections, or CAUTI, C-A-U-T-I. As hospitals drill into these issues, we find that the vast majority of problems are inevitably caused by a relatively small number of medical staff or vendors. There's an old adage that says 90% of any problem is caused by 10% of the participants in any issue. In issues affecting hack problems, the ratio is more like 5% of bad actors drive 95% of the problem. Hospital CFOs are always leery of attacking particular physicians or vendors because they believe that the physicians drive census and that census is more important than losses in revenue. In our current environment, though, there are few physicians that drive enough census to make up for millions of dollars in lost revenue due to penalties. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Election Day, Tuesday, November the 2nd, and you're listening to the 483rd Live Edition of Talk 10 Tuesday Standby. Here's an important reminder. CMS profiles the performance of every short-term hospital, including VA facilities, using the Agency for Healthcare Research Quality Patient Safety Indicators on its Hospital Compare website. This affects a hospital's fiscal integrity. In addition, it contributes greatly to LeapFrog Hospital Safety Grade reputational scoring. Unfortunately, many hospitals do not fully understand how patient safety indicators work and how to prevent inaccurate and often negative ratings. But during an upcoming ICD-10 Monitor webcast, Dr. James Kennedy will clearly explain how to mitigate risk by adjusting your ICD-10 CMPCS coding, documentation, and traditional clinical documentation integrity workflows. Register now to attend AHRQ, Patient Safety Indicators Update, Minimizing Risk, Maximizing Payment. The webcast is November 10th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now at the ICD University Bookstore. Here now with the Talk in Tuesday Coding Report is Lori Johnson. Good morning, Lori. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. The last Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting was held on September 14th and 15th. The deadline is fast approaching to provide comments on the presented proposals. I find that the Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting provides the spirit of the code. These meetings provide the background to, as to why the code is needed and how the information will be used. There are benefits to participating in the Coordination and Maintenance Committee process. Free continuing education credits are given for watching the meeting. There is also satisfaction in providing feedback in the code development process. Have you ever seen a new code and wondered, what is the purpose of that code? Attendees can provide live feedback, but not everyone is comfortable with public speaking. Another way to, provide, to participate in the code development process is to write comments about the diagnosis and or procedure proposals. These comments can be sent by email. I have provided the information regarding where to find the diagnosis and procedure proposals and the email addresses to send the comments. And you can see them on the screen, and you can also find this information under the Resources tab. 
there is not a specific format in providing the comments. You should identify the proposal on which you are commenting on and provide your feedback, which can include favorable or unfavorable comments. Comments on the diagnosis and pr procedure proposals are due by November 15th. A partial list of proposals for diagnosis codes include the bronchiolitis obliterans syndrome and bronchiolitis obliterans, apnea of newborns, contrast-induced nephropathy, electric-assisted bicycles, hepatic encephalopathy, and malignant pericardial effusion. Some of the topics for procedures include administration of broad consortium microbiota-based live biotherapeutic suspension, pressure-controlled intermittent coronary sinus occlusion, and measurement of exhaled nitric oxide. Remember that the diagnosis and procedure codes will be approved more frequently with the addition of the April 1st code release effective April 1st, 2022. According to the announced timeline, the approved codes will be announced in November. By February 1st, the software code files and coding guideline updates will be published. At, at that meeting, the time for April 1st um, code release was reviewed. The codes are to be effective April 1st, again, will be announced in November. Erica, back to you. Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant at Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Now it's time for RegWatch, featuring nationally recognized healthcare technology consultant, Stanley Knoxon. Stanley, good morning. A lot of news coming out of Washington these days. What do we need to know? Uh, yes, sir. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning to everyone on this call. The first of the annual calendar year payment update rules has been released by CMS. That is the 2022 ESRD, the end-stage renal disease payment rule. We're anxiously awaiting the publication of the new physician fee schedule rule and the new outpatient hospital PPS rule. These are imminent, and we'll report on them after they are published. The new ESRD rule gives us some indications of new policy directions from CMS. The agency is taking direct steps to reduce disparities in rates of home dialysis and kidney transplants among ESRD patients with lower socioeconomic status. Studies have shown that racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic factors influence the rates of kidney disease, hospital readmissions, and costs. To address this, CMS is updating several of its ESRD payment models. Changes include testing a new payment incentive that rewards ESRD facilities and clinicians who manage dialysis patients for achieving significant improvements in their home dialysis rate and kidney transplant rate for lower-income beneficiaries. In addition, CMS is approving technology under a recently established policy that allows for enhanced payments for innovative technologies that represent a substantial clinical improvement relative to existing options. This approval will help ESRD facilities offer an additional option to beneficiaries for home dialysis at this critical time in the pandemic. CMS also modified the ESRD quality improvement program so that no facility will receive a payment reduction for the upcoming year, especially since such payment reductions would have been based on performance during the height of the pandemic in 2020. And just uh, to keep folks up to date, 
CMS did extend the public health emergency due to COVID-19 to at least January of 2022. The final calendar year 2022 ESRD payment base rate is $257.90, an increase of nearly $5 to the current base rate. CMS has projected projected that the updates for, C- for calendar year 2022 increased the total payment to all ESRD facilities by 2.5% compared with calendar year 2021. For hospital-based facilities, CMS projects an increase in total payments of 3.3%, and for freestanding facilities, CMS projects an increase in total payments of 2.5%. In other regulatory news, the Biden administration has also proposed eliminating the sunset rule under which HHS would have had to review regulations every 10 years and propose modifications. Given the large number of regulations from the Department of Health and Human Services, about 18,000, this rule would have placed an enormous burden on the industry and on the department. Several industry lawsuits have succeeded in delaying the rule's implementation, and as I've said, the new administration is planning to sunset that sunset rule. Last month, CMS published a strategy paper for its CMS Innovation Center model work. The paper outlines the agency's directions for payment models with five major objectives, driving accountable care, advancing health equity, supporting innovation, addressing affordability, and partnering to achieve system transformation. Some reported goals are to move all Medicare patients into into accountable care organizations, and reducing the emphasis on risk scoring, which has led to some coding issues. Dr. Reamer, back to you. Thank you, Stanley. That was Healthcare IT Authority, Stanley Nockamson. Stanley is the founder of Nockamson Advisors, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Stanley, thank you again for an excellent report. Stanley's going to be with us next Tuesday with more information on the latest regulatory news. Uh, Coming up next, why C-section rates are high and what can be done to bring those down. That's when Christy Pollard joins us. But first, this important message. Finally, an educational and training solution scaled to your biggest challenges. Give your entire team unlimited access to the country's most trusted IR coding, billing, and compliance resources. As a Talk 10 Tuesday listener, you know that mistakes and omissions in coding for interventional radiology services plague providers across the country. Jeff Myshak, a top IR coding expert and contributor to MedLearn Publishing Resources, agrees. And he points out, these issues come with a huge price tag. He cites the example of lower extremity interventions which are routinely undercoded. And considering this type of procedure commands a payment of up to $3,000, you can see his point. Whether the problem is undercoding, overcoding, or non-compliant billing, IR providers need to take corrective action now. No one can afford to sacrifice much revenue, especially after the severe financial challenges of recent years. There is an educational and training solution that's perfectly proportioned to the problem at hand. The Interventional Radiology All-Access Pass. Subscribe today for your pass and get unlimited access to top-rated radiology, interventional radiology, coding, and compliance education. Now available online at shop.medlearn.com. We continue our new series here on Talk and Tuesday about maternal morbidity and mortality. Here now with part three in her four-part series is Christy Pollard. Good morning, Christy. Good morning, Chuck. 
So over the past couple of weeks, I've talked about the importance of coded data to programs focusing on improving maternal outcomes. But I think many have been distracted by that nagging question, why does the U.S. have such a high number of pregnancy-related deaths? Well, my first thought is, darn it, Jim, I'm a coder, not a doctor. And answering these questions seems above my pay grade. Nonetheless, I did a literature review, and here's what I found. So the reason maternal mortality is higher in the U.S. than in other wealthy countries isn't one reason. The underlying cause is multifaceted, and the quality improvement programs I've been covering in the series are aimed at identifying ways to improve the care of OB patients. But let's start with patient age. Women are waiting longer to have babies. I myself was one of those women of advanced maternal age, a term I much preferred over elderly prima gravida. Because the age at which women deliver their first babies is increasing, so are comorbidities commonly associated with age, such as obesity and diabetes. Many pregnancies are also unplanned, which could cause failure to address those chronic health issues before pregnancy and also delay prenatal care. While women of every race are affected by these high numbers, more women of color die from pregnancy-related conditions than white women. They often don't receive the same treatment as white women and are more likely to have risk factors such as diabetes, high blood pressure, late prenatal care, and obesity. Women of low income and who live in rural areas are also at a higher risk than higher income women and those living in urban areas. Other causes put the focus on the healthcare industry. The fragmented health system in the U.S. can make it difficult for new mothers to get care, especially if they don't have insurance. And while we're not just talking about payment here, you know, lack of communication and coordination of care between providers can lead to missing those important symptoms that require a specific treatment plan. Others suggest that there are simply not enough providers to care for women in the postpartum period, or that lack of training leads to confusion about how to recognize those concerning symptoms and initiate the prompt treatment. But I think one of the most interesting metrics to look at is the steady decline of the infant mortality rate as maternal death rates continue to climb. Are we taking better care of babies than moms? Infant mortality is currently at its lowest point in history thanks to decades of effort in preventing defects, reducing preterm births, and improving outcomes for severely premature infants. Some state Medicaid programs cover the mother for only 60 days postpartum, but they cover their babies for a full year. There's also more focus on caring for the baby postpartum than the mother. Discharge instructions give information about how to breastfeed and what to do if the baby is sick, but don't always address how to assess if the mother needs medical attention. There are also two major health crises occurring right now, the opioid crisis and COVID-19. Both of these affect uh, maternal mortality. Uh, the latter, COVID, is currently one of the biggest threats to pregnant women, and the CDC is strongly encouraging pregnant women to get vaccinated. And finally, C-sections are associated with more poor patient outcomes than vaginal births. 
it's not exactly a secret that hospitals have focused on reducing C-sections for several years. My article this week in ICD-10 Monitor talked about coding for inductions, which can impact C-section rates. And with that, back to you, Erica. Thanks, Christy. That was Christy Pollard. Christy is the Director of Coding Quality and Education for the Hagen Consulting Group. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Christy Pollard, thank you again for an excellent report. And be sure to read Part 3 of her outstanding series in today's ICD-10 Monitor. What in the world is a medical assistant? <laughs> well, to answer that question, here is ICD-10 Monitor contributor Terry Fletcher with our lead story, and good morning, Terry. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. In a recent 2018 New Jersey grand jury indictment, three defendants, a doctor, a medical assistant, and an office manager, who all worked together in the same medical practice, were charged with conspiracy to fraudulently bill for the medical assistant services. The trial court dismissed the indictment, including that they are concluding that the prosecutor failed to adequately and accurately instruct the grand jury about what a medical assistant could do without encroaching on the licensed practice of medicine. However, this case then went to the appellate division and looked for what would constitute a violation under the statute. The case is still pending, and with the more frequent use and need of medical assistance, it also presents a unique question for the healthcare industry as a whole. What services exactly can a medical assistant perform under the supervision of a licensed physician without encroaching upon the practice of medicine? So medical assistants have a narrow list of things they can and cannot do for patients or for a physician in a doctor's office. It's often difficult to know what, that, what is allowed because there are not strong laws regarding medical assistance in place. In fact, most MAs learn their skills on the job. Only till recently have they started earning medical assisting certificates and or getting certified with national agencies or community colleges. Also, many physician practices refer to their back office staff as quote-unquote nurses. This general term can range from an actual RN to an NP, which is a nurse practitioner, or an advanced practice provider like an NP or PA. But it also has been reused to refer to the physician's back office or ancillary staff, an MA as well, which is incorrect and can give the patient a false impression that this is a medical decision-making professional. Let's be clear, they are not. Now, there are no specific federal rules for MAs, so it's imperative that practices read up on their state statutes before undertaking any tasks that they are unsure of, because each state has different rules. So the profession as a whole is lacking a unified scope of practice. So medical assistance and delegation. Whenever a medical assistant performs a skill, they are doing so under a doctor's supervision. So the doctor assumes responsibility for whatever the medical assistant does but there is some gray areas there that could leave a medical assistant open to, get to litigation. Doctors can tell a medical assistant to do anything, but if that doctor is out of line by telling their MA to do something outside their medical assisting scope of practice for their state, then they may be liable for doing something that they're not qualified to do. This is where it's important to know your state scope. So in my research, looking at over a dozen state rules, here's, there were some consistencies on what a medical assistant can and can't do. First of all, they can prepare medical records, maintain patient charts, order supplies, maintain medical office equipment, manage money accounts from patients, and schedule appointments. They can also prepare instruments for exams, prepare exam rooms, and record vital signs. Assisting the doctor during procedures and minor surgical interventions could also be within their scope of practice, but check with your state. In California, for example, an MA can't assist with minor procedures in certain circumstances, but in Texas, they can on a limited basis. Medical assistants can also collect specimens such as urine, blood, or sputum 
for lab tests and perform stat screenings under the supervision of a physician or NPP, but not independently. They can relay questions from a patient to a doctor by phone and can transcribe dictated medical documents for the doctor, but these services cannot be billed to a payer or charged to a patient. Medical assistants also can relay lab tests, but can't provide interpretation of them. Now be clear, they cannot treat or diagnose patients. Again, they cannot treat or diagnose patients. They can educate patients about a diagnosis a doctor has given or perform a prescribed treatment, but cannot treat or diagnose on their own. Medical assistants cannot assess, plan, or evaluate a patient or their care. A, doc- a doctor or a nurse, NP or, or uh, nurse practitioner, or QHP, has to examine the patient to determine the plan of care for them. Medical assistants cannot interpret test results or advise, advise patients about their medical condition in any way. They cannot give IV medications or administer anesthetic medications for the purpose of making patients unconscious. They can't prescribe or refill medications independently. It's not within the scope of their practice. And they cannot perform physical therapy except in an assisting role. So I strongly advise practices to check with your state board of medicine to determine what your medical assisting scope of practice is. If anything should go wrong, the responsibility falls on the physician. As you can see, each state has its own ideas about what medical assistance can reasonably do, and you're open to liability if you do not know your limitations. So do your homework. Learn what your scope of practice is in your particular state and have this information in a compliance manual easily to refer to if you're ever asked to prove it. Thank you very much. That was nationally recognized professional coder, auditor, and educator Terry Pletcher. Terry reported our lead story this morning. Be sure to read her report in today's ICD-10 Monitor. Now's the time for a very popular segment here at Talk Tuesday. called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, it's all yours. I am not going to lie. I was anxious about attending the Association of Clinical Documentation Integrity Specialists' annual national conference in person. It was being held in Dallas, and I have been concerned with the way Texas has been approaching the pandemic. Actus assured me that it could run the conference safely, so it was a go. There were fewer attendees than in the past, around 400-ish, with an additional approximately 100 vendor participants. In the past, the conference usually connected about 2,000 people. The space was large enough to accommodate social distance. Many people I spoke with had been vaccinated. Masks were mandated when not actively eating or drinking. Keep in mind that the coronavirus does not respect eating or drinking as a reason to put its quest to procreate on pause. When I flew, I didn't remove my N95 mask to eat or drink. Also, we humans normally breathe in and out of our noses. If your mask doesn't go over your nose, it isn't protecting anyone. If your mask is too big and keeps slipping down, either get a new one that fits or put a piece of tape over the top to hold it up. I decided to attend the welcome reception with my N95 mask snugly on. I hung out with President Juliet Ugarte Hopkins at the American College of Physician Advisors booth. We recruited physician advisors to join our organization and gave out some cool goodies. Shout out to those of you who came over and said hi to me. Tuesday morning, Dr. Dr. Nicole Fox did an evocative talk on resilience, managing up, and down. My talk was lessons from COVID-19. I think of it like Buzz Lightyear's pandemic and beyond. Key points from my talk were how providers could phrase prolonged cases of COVID-19 to get correct coding, like documenting ongoing symptomatic 
or persistent COVID-19 infection. How to use U09.9 post-COVID-19 condition unspecified. This is the code for the entity Merriam-Webster just added to their lexicon, long COVID. There can be myriad presentations and the manifestation gets coded first. That although we may treat empirically for a secondary bacterial infection, at the end of the day, COVID-19 is more than enough to warrant an admission. How to address sepsis with COVID. How breakthrough COVID, another Merriam-Webster newcomer, gets coded. There is no code to signify full vaccination, and Z28.3 under immunization is not appropriate for COVID-19. If a patient has had previous infection, they may have had Z86.16, personal history of COVID-19, or U09.9, the sequela indicator. How Z03.818, contact ruled out, and Z11.52, encounter for screening for COVID-19, will be used post-pandemic. At the airport, I saw a digital sign that said the National Guard was giving out free COVID-19 shots at gates B1 and C2, so I moseyed over. I asked if they were giving boosters, and they said yes. I was ecstatic when they said I could have mine. I opted to mix and match. I had been fully vaccinated with Moderna and selected a Pfizer booster. I experienced my usual headache, body aches, and fatigue the next day. I relish side effects. It makes me feel like my body is doing what it's supposed to be doing. That brings me to the final Merriam-Webster new phrase, vaccine passport. The National Guardsman made me a new card with all my shots recorded on it. I shrink it down and laminate it so it fits in my wallet. I only wish more places demanded proof of vaccination. It is very regional. I know it would make me feel safer. This may not be the last booster we need. Time will tell. And I will get mine as soon as I am able, every time. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica, very much. That's going to be a wrap for our 483rd Live Edition Talk to Tuesday. And I want to thank our panelists today, Laurie Johnson, Tim Powell, Christy Pollard, Terry Fletcher, who reported our lead story. And as always, thanks to our co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And remember, you can listen to all the Talked In Tuesday broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Talked In Tuesday at ICD 10 Modern. Have a great week, everybody. Be sure to vote. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.